Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his five-week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, The Creation of Israel, Part 1, recorded in September 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. So last time we began our journey through the Old Testament and the idea of creation, we looked at the fundamental theme of creation versus chaos, that most common form of creation story where God battles a monster in order to bring order to the world. Um, And we ended up talking about the two better-known creation stories at the beginning of Genesis that have no monsters in them. Or rather, the monster ends up being us. Um, Human beings replace the mythological creatures of the other creation stories as the the primary source of of, uh, disorder in the world. Um, So in that sense, the Bible is very modern uh, in the way that it conceives of evil. So we talked a bit about those creation stories. When we think about creation, we generally think about the creation of the cosmos. Some of you are old enough to remember Carl Sagan's series, Cosmos. But today we're talking about the creation of Israel, the creation of a people in history. And what might not be obvious to you is that the story of Israel in the Old Testament and how it comes to be is just as much uh, bound up with the whole concept of creation as the creation of the cosmos is. And what I want to show today is how the Old Testament authors not only think of the story of Israel as a story of creation, but also how they understand the history of this people and its coming into being to be intimately connected with the continued existence of the ordered world that we call the cosmos, that we call creation writ large. Um, to assist me in illustrating this idea, my first um, text is actually from a rabbinic uh, compilation. This is sort of a compilation of rabbinic homilies uh, from at least the 6th century CE, 6th century AD. It's called Genesis Rabbah, and it's basically rabbinic comments on the interpretation of the book of Genesis. And the rabbis said that there were six things that existed before creation, when only the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. That's quoting from Genesis chapter 1. So six things actually existed before all that, according to the rabbis. And uh, But two of them, they said, were complete in every detail. So according to the rabbis, both the Torah, the, uh, the law, and the throne of God, God's sovereignty, were complete uh, and existed in their complete form before creation. But there were four other things that, would, that also existed before creation. That is to say, in the mind of God, sort of as a blueprint. Uh, and those were the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those folks. Israel, the people of Israel, which is the subject of our talk today. The temple, which is the subject of next week's talk. And the name of the Messiah. All of these, they said, existed prior to the creation only in an incomplete form. So this is a nice entree into our topic because it suggests that at least within Jewish tradition, uh, there is an understanding that the the birth of Israel in history is part of 
the work of creation, God's creative act. And that's something that I mentioned at the beginning of last talk, that in the Old Testament, creation is not just a thing of the past. It's not just a primordial event. It's a typical event. It's an ongoing process. And so the story of Israel will be an illustration of this. I like to think of Israel as God's plan B. Uh, plan A was let's create a wonderful ecosystem and let's put human beings in it and it'll be wonderful. But of course it's not. We have the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden. Or in the priestly version, we have human beings starting to shed blood and pollute creation. Uh, that's in Genesis 8, or Genesis 6 or 7 actually, round about there. That's the flood story. Uh, and so plan A doesn't work. In fact, if you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, it's basically, as Henry Ford would say, one damn thing after another, where human beings are, those pesky humans are continually frustrating God, and God is simply turning into a crime and punishment sort of deity, and he doesn't want to be that. And so by the time we get to chapter 12, God realizes that it's not working, he needs a new plan, or perhaps he needs a plan. And so his plan is, uh, rather than to destroy all humanity again, he tried that and it didn't really help, he's going to work on a particular, uh, he's going to bring into existence a nation out of scratch. So he's going to create a people through whom he can illustrate the kind of relationship he wants between human beings and the rest of the world and him. This is the story of Israel. And... Uh, there's actually, I don't think I used it here, but there's a quote from the, dogma, the, the Catholic Church's dogmatic constitution, which is the definition, the, the church's definition of itself. And there's a nice little statement where it says, uh, God uh, created human beings and desired to save them, not as individuals unconnected with one another, but as, uh, but as a people, uh, bringing people together as a community uh, that would know and love and serve him, and also, again, not pollute his world. Uh, and so that is the story of Israel. And it begins in chapter 12 of Genesis with the so-called call of Abraham. He's, of course, called Abram at this point, but we can say call of Abraham. And uh, at this point, God says, out of, no out of nowhere, he sort of jumps out of nowhere and says to Abraham, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Sounds great. What we probably don't realize is how surprising this statement is. Let's think of the theme of blessing. Well, other than Genesis 1, where God blesses human beings and animals to procreate and dominate... Uh, giving them the Darwinian imperative. Beyond that, God never blesses anything. He has not blessed anything throughout the first 11 chapters of the Bible. So this is a new thing he's doing. Another theme that is rather striking, since the fall, since people's expulsion from the Garden of Eden, all those bad things that happened in the first 11 chapters, uh, God's response to them is simply to displace people. He expels them from the Garden. He he uh, curses Cain from the land for murdering his brother. He um, displaces everyone in the flood. And when people get a bit too uppity, he displaces them by changing their languages so they can't communicate with one another. So displacement is, has hitherto been a negative thing. It's been an act of punishment. Here, he's inviting 
this guy Abraham to, as Mitt Romney said, to self-deport, uh, but with a positive goal in mind, not just that it's going to be, he's going to do something nice for this guy, but through him, God is going to bless all of humanity. Again, the Garden of Eden story begins with God cursing humanity. Now he says, uh, I'm going to arrange it so that I can bless humanity. So clearly, it's a vast plan. Uh, and Abram and the readers of, of Genesis at this stage have no idea how God is going to manage it. But Abram's response is one of trust. He, he goes along. Uh, and he will continue to act out of trust throughout uh, the stories about him. This leads into what is known as the great ancestor narratives, or more traditionally, the patriarchal narratives. Great ancestors suggest that the women are ancestors too. Uh, this is the entirety of the book of Genesis, except for the bad parts in chapters uh, 3 to 11. So what happens? You have this multi-generational prehistory of Israel, the nation of Israel. This is more than just filler. You know, one might wonder, if God just wanted to make a people, why couldn't he have just magically snapped his finger and turned Abram into a great nation right then and there? Why do we need, story-wise, why do we need three generations uh, to work this out before we actually come to this people who will then be positioned uh, to bless all, uh, through whom God will bless all, uh, all humanity? I would suggest that at the level of story, at the literary level, uh, the function of the of telling stories about these ancestors of Israel is to effect, to bring about a series of reversals in the human condition uh, that was portrayed during the bad parts of Genesis. Um, so there are three major negative things uh, that define the human condition in those first chapters of Genesis. First, of course, is the the rupture, the 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 the, the killing of trust between human beings and God, thanks to the snake. So trust no longer exists between human beings and God. They don't trust God. They take things into their own hands. And he doesn't trust them. He has to get them out of the garden. So that's bad thing number one. Bad thing number two is murder or sin, as the Bible calls it. Um, when, with the birth of the first human beings after the first generation, uh, you have a struggle between two brothers in which one kills the other because the other uh, is being favored over him. That's the Cain and Abel story. So fratricide is the second bad thing. The third bad thing is family disunity. After the flood, humanity has a chance to start again, right? You have Noah and his family and all the animals. And, um, but almost immediately when they get out of the ark, uh, Noah gets himself drunk. And um, one of his sons uh, sees him naked, and for some reason he gets a bit upset about this. We're not actually sure what it means that he saw him naked. Does it mean that he was just, you know, observing him? Does it mean he raped him? Uh, both of those are possibilities. But something bad happens between father and son. And then Noah ends up, in a fit of rage, cursing the offending son's son. And actually he has lots of sons. He only curses one of his sons. And it just happens to be the son who is the ancestor of the Israelites' enemies. So there may be a bit of a national um, ulterior motive there. But the point is that things go bad. Uh, with the, the spread of humanity after the flood, uh, humanity gets divided into basically antagonistic genealogical blocks. So these are the three bads that need to be made right. Trust between human beings and God, uh, or lack of trust rather. Uh, murder between brothers, inability to exist 
with status inequality, one brother favored over the other, and then finally keeping the family together. Each of these three challenges is overcome in these stories of Israel's ancestors. First, uh, and actually let me go to the next slide. And so here we have the little chart. Um, Adam and Eve, the first generation of humanity, the rupture of trust between humans and God is rectified in the story of Abraham and Sarah. Uh, and again, I mentioned that Abraham's primary characteristic in these stories is trust. Right? He demonstrates trust. And in fact, in Genesis 16, it says, because he trusted in God, God considered him righteous. Uh, so that's a big deal for the story. So the story of Abraham and Sarah kind of reverses the story of Adam and Eve or ameliorates it. Um, the problem of fraternal peace between Cain and Abel is rectified in the story of Jacob and Esau, who's actually the grandson of the grandsons of Abraham. There's a, set, a generation between there, Isaac and Rebekah, but Isaac doesn't really do much except get tied up and almost sacrificed. Um, but Jacob and Esau, uh, they, they achieve fraternal peace. Uh, they avoid killing one another. Then finally, the theme of family unity, which is destroyed by Noah and his sons, is restored uh, by, the dis- by the children of Jacob. And we have to remember that Jacob, he becomes Israel. So when we talk about the nation of Israel, we can also talk about the individual Israel. So the children of Israel, literally, they uh, succeed in preventing the family from fracturing into the same antagonistic blocks that we saw during the bad old years. So that's the basic map of Genesis. That's what happens in terms of what comes before it. Um, What does this have to do with creation? I'll return to that later. Uh, But suffice to say that all of these reversals, although the human protagonists are essential to them, to their success, ultimately it is the providential creative activity of God that enables those reversals to take place. So when we speak of the creation of Israel, we mean this on many levels. Uh, it's God's activity in these stories that enables Israel to be created as a people. And then when we get to the Exodus, which is sort of the second movement in the drama, we find how God overcomes a force of chaos, which is the Pharaoh and the the, the Egyptian state, in order to free his people uh, so that they can serve him rather than the Pharaoh. Uh, that's another moment of creation. That's the climactic moment of creation. And then finally, the, the denouement, the, the, the conclusion is uh, God creating Israel as a covenant people, bringing them into covenant with himself at Mount Sinai. That's the three big stages in the creation of Israel. At each of these moments, we'll see the language of creation that we saw last time, last week, will be used to describe some of these things. Okay, let's go into a little more depth into these reversals. So first of all, Abraham and Sarah as a reversal of Adam and Eve. So the basic problem of humanity, according to the Garden of Eden story, is we all have a God complex, or as Richard Dawkins says, a God delusion, only he didn't mean it that way. We have a God delusion. We, we, we want to be God. We want to be in control. We want to, uh, uh, to dictate the way things are. But of course, we live in a world where there are other beings besides us, so we can't do that, not least God. So this God complex is the basic problem, uh, and that's why humans get expelled. But the first manifestation of the God complex after the Garden of Eden is actually the birth of Cain. And even more specifically, it is the statement that Eve, the first woman, makes 
as she interprets the meaning of her conceiving and bearing a son. So let's take a look at this. Uh, this is what the text in the Hebrew literally says in Genesis 4.1. This is right after the Garden of Eden. It says, Now the man knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, Cain in Hebrew, saying, I have produced or created, you can even say, uh, which is kanini. Kanini sounds like Cain. There's a word play there. I have produced or created a man with Adonai, with God, with the Lord. Um, this is sometimes translated, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. But that's an interpretation because the Hebrew text does not have the word help in it. The interpretation might be correct, but if so, she seems to be lying. Because if you look at the story, you just read the story and you, do, and you don't read anything into it, you'll see that God has nothing to do with the conception of the first child. It says the man knew his wife. God didn't play any role. Now, later on, when we get to Abraham and Sarah, Sarah does indeed conceive a child with the help of God. And so if that's what this means, then it's almost sort of looking ahead to the real deal. But here, it's something quite less than God involving himself in the act of procreation. There's another way of reading that statement that Eve makes. And it's actually based on the way God uses the word with. In Exodus 20, 23, so this is way ahead. This is actually at the climax, at the conclusion of our story, when God transforms Israel into a covenant community. And uh, this is right after the Ten Commandments, actually. He gives another commandment, which has to do with idolatry, not, not worshiping other gods, not constructing images of other gods. But look at the way he says it. He says, you shall not make gods of silver with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Now, the second statement, you shall not make for yourselves gods of gold, that we can probably get what that means. It means you're not supposed to craft images, right? But the first one, you shall not make gods of silver with me. Does that mean God is going down to the silversmith's forge to make this idol with them? No, of course not. That's not what with means. It certainly does not mean with my help. Now, there's another way that that can be read in the sense of on a par with. So you shall not set any other gods on a par with me, is probably what he's saying there. And therefore, you shall not make gods like that. Now, if you read that as what Eve means, then what she's saying is basically, like God, I have created man. I have become like God. This is my God complex. Eve's claim to create life is mirrored by Cain's act of destroying it in the very next few verses. And so, if you will, the giving and taking of life, because life is a gift of the creator, the giving and taking of life is exclusively the creator's prerogative. And so when human beings usurp that prerogative one way or the other, they are playing God. Now, there, there's nothing in here about procreation being bad. In fact, God commands it in chapter 1, right? So having children is not the problem. It's how Eve understands that act that is the problem. And since we're talking about a play on words here, her perception that she is kanini, she is acquiring, producing, creating a man, that attitude, in a sense, gets passed on and manifested in the story in the name and the character of the son that she produces, Cain, who becomes the first murderer. So my suggestion is that this is an example of humanity's problem, of the God complex. This is what needs to be reversed uh, in the story of Abraham and Sarah. So how do you reverse it? Well, in the case of 
Abraham and Sarah, you, uh, you pick as your candidates, uh, for making the world right, um, someone who's too, uh, a man who's too old to have kids and a woman who's barren anyway. Now, if they're, if they're incapable of having children, then they certainly can't have the God complex. They can't express it that way. The only way they can have children, of course, is if God intervenes, if he helps. And that's exactly what happens in the story. The drama of the story of Abraham and Sarah is the drama of figuring out how God is going to fulfill the promise to make a great nation out of them. And it's only by chapter 15 that we hear that Abraham is actually going to be the father. And it's only until chapter 16 uh, that we learn that Sarah is going to be the mother. So this is a long, drawn-out sort of mystery novel that gradually becomes clearer how God's going to work it out. And in the process, uh, we have several stories which basically force the human characters, the human protagonists, to realize that they are not God. They do not have the capacity to do this on their own. So I think what one of the ways you can interpret this theologically or even literarily, what is the, the meaning of this idea of God enabling the barren woman to give birth, which of course is not just Sarah, it's also every other significant matriarch. There's Rebecca, uh, there's uh, the wives of Jacob who are alternately fertile and infertile, God turning the switch on and off in order to make sure they all get children. Um, but this is a theme that occurs again and again and again. What it's his meaning, I would suggest the meaning is that this is a way of God extricating the act of birth out of Eve's attitude, Eve's God complex, and what that leads to in chapters 3 to 11, or 4 to 11, rather, of Genesis. So at the level of story, God is intervening to recreate the context of humanity. The context is recreated from the very beginning by telling Abraham to leave the entire genealogical context that has defined him and every other human up to then. Leave your homeland, leave your family, leave your father's house. Don't be defined by that. Your identity will be defined by me. And by the way, your offspring will be brought into existence with my help. Um, there's, of course, the famous story where, um, well, actually, everyone laughs at one point um, <laughs> in the story. And the reason why is because Yitzchak, uh, the, the kid's name, means he laughed. Uh, and so you have the mom laughing when she hears she's going to give birth. The father laughs, too. Um, the word Yitzchak is probably short for Yitzchak El, God laughs. In fact, if you want to stretch it even further, Psalm 2, one of the psalms, which is the psalm of royal coronation, when the king is adopted as God's son to rule Israel on his behalf, it says the enemies of, uh, of God sort of rebel against him, and he laughs from heaven and says, I've appointed, I've, I, I've given birth to my son, uh, my Messiah, who's going to rule my people on my behalf. So this theme of God laughing, maybe this is the, the joke is on us, perhaps. Uh, anyway, that's the first reversal. It involves God's creative power at work. The second reversal the problem of fraternal strife or fratricide, lack of peace among brothers. This is the Jacob and Esau story. This is the first instance where, uh, where actual murder is threatened. Right? We probably remember the story of Jacob. Right? Jacob is the younger son, just like Abel was the younger son. Jacob is favored 
by his mother, and we're told in a, in a prophecy that he will be the one to lead the family, even though he's not the firstborn. And um, uh, Jacob then steals, tricks his older brother out of his birthright, deceives his father to steal the birthright from his father, uh, even wrestles God to a standstill uh, to demand the blessing of the firstborn at one point, and he gets it. So he's very, he's very, he's very unlike Abram, who's always trusting and going along with the program. Jacob's always resisting the program so that he can get out on top. Uh, in a sense, he has his own kind of mini God complex, trying to control the situation constantly. But God leads him through various situations that force him to confront that complex, to confront that flaw within himself. And he basically has to undergo the very thing that he has tried to avoid. He has tricked people so he gets the prize only to, uh, only to be tricked himself throughout his life, to experience deception from others, to feel what it, what it means to be hoodwinked. Uh, and after he's been sufficiently humiliated in various forms, he finally uh, is told by God, go and meet your brother. You know, I'll protect you. And... Uh, how does he actually prevent his brother Esau from trying to kill him? Well, uh, what apparently, but well, we can't we can't get inside the head of Esau because we're not told what he's thinking. Uh, but when Jacob shows up, when he meets his brother again after his brother has sworn to kill him, he says, um, you know, uh, uh, he speaks, he addresses Esau as his lord and speaks of himself as his slave. In other words, he 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 gives up. He gives up, he, he self-abnegates, he gives up everything he's taken. And that giving up of control uh, apparently is the key to his own life, he, to his own, his own continued life, but also their reconciliation. So the story of Jacob is an interesting weaving of human initiative and divine initiative together to reach this conclusion. It's not quite as cut and dried as miraculously causing women to conceive. But God is, pres is present in the story in various ways, creatively changing the story of murder, changing the plot line so that it doesn't repeat itself. But the story is not over because even though the two brothers reconcile in the end and agree to live and let live, they are either unable or unwilling to live together. Esau is unwilling to own Jacob as his master, as the, the leader of the family, they live apart. They're alienated from one another. And that surely cannot be a symbol of the kind of humanity that God is trying to recraft. Right? So there's still something to be done. It's not a full solution. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.